Thanks, Daniel. Well, my name is Ron Cool, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hillside, and uh, you know, it's a joy to welcome all of you, and my addition of congratulations to those of you who had babies baptized. It's great for us to be able to celebrate God's promises and then look forward to them responding and receiving the gift of that promise. Uh, we know we have a fair number of visitors here this morning, and so um, we've been doing a series, as Daniel mentioned earlier, on the Heidelberg Catechism, and uh, we're actually going to cheat a little bit. I'm calling it five great questions, but I'm going to ask more than five, or I'm going to ask more than just one this morning, um, but I think it'll, it'll go all right. And I want to start by, by saying something that in some ways is really obvious, and, and, and you might kind of wonder about it, but I, I think you'll see why I think this is important as we, as we go along. And so what I want to say is, if I don't know about a problem or care about a problem, I don't care much about the solution, okay? It, it's just a rule of life. If, if, I don't, if I don't feel like I have a big problem, you come and you tell me you solved that problem, I'm not going to jump up and down, right? If I don't feel like I have a problem, let's say, for example, all right, you, uh, you, you discover how to let's say, just say, make french fries taste like broccoli. And you're all excited because you know how to make french fries taste like broccoli. I will tell you right now, I don't care. Okay, because I don't want my french fries to taste like broccoli. I want my french fries to taste like french fries. There's no problem with the way my french fries taste. Now, if you can make broccoli taste like french fries, right? If you can do that, if I can get a Whopper in broccoli... And, if, and it tastes like the Whopper and fries, then I care. But even really, in reality, just a little, right? I mean, it's not going to change the world, all right? It, it, it might make it a little nicer, but it's not that big of a deal. Uh, again, another example of this. If you tell me that you can figure out how to, how to watch every season of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills for free, I don't care. Other than to say, I worry about your soul. Uh, but you're, I mean, if you think that's a great deal, you've solved this problem, you know how to watch this for free, every episode, it's all free, it's all available, Run. I don't care. Now, you want to talk about getting me tickets to the Super Bowl? I care, right? All right. And, and, and so that's just the way it works. It's just the way it works, right? You tell me you got a cure for cancer, then we care a lot. The level at which we feel like we have a problem the level, the level at which we feel like we have a struggle determines how passionate we are about the solution, determines how much we care about the solution. And, 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 and if I don't care about the problem, I, I won't care about the solution. And, and that's why the Heidelberg Catechism begins where it does. As Daniel mentioned, we looked at question one last week, and, 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 and the, the declaration was that I belong to Jesus Christ that I belong to Jesus Christ. This is the bottom line. This is what holds my life together. And, and now we look at question two. And, and, and it asks this question. It says, well, well, what must you know? What must you know to live and die in this comfort? What's the important thing for you to know? And, and, and the first thing it says is this. It, it, it says, first, I have to know how great my sins and misery are. And in some way, I think this is why Christians get accused of, of being negative, right? Preachers get accused of being judgmental. Because you want to talk about sin all the time. You want to tell me that I'm a sinner. You want to tell me that I'm guilty. You want to tell me all these things. But what the catechism wants us to know is we will never understand. Let me put it this way. We will never understand the necessity of Jesus until we know how big our sin and misery problem is. All right? We will never understand that. We will never understand the beauty of Jesus until we understand how big our sin and misery problem is. And I am convinced, in some ways, I am convinced that this is one of the biggest challenges for us as Christians in bringing the good news. I have friends in my neighborhood who, who are not Christians, and, and I can go to them and I can say, Jesus Christ will forgive your sins, and they're going to look at me like, I don't have a problem with that. I'm okay with who I am. They don't struggle with guilt. They don't understand. that. that, that, that and, and, and so until we understand this, the catechism is saying, 
Until we understand this, that, that we are sinners, until we understand that we are dead in our sin, until we get that straight, we'll never understand Jesus. We'll never understand salvation. And so that's where the catechism starts, and that's where, where I want to start. And I want to just kind of real quick lump together answers 3 through 8, and then I want to look a little more quick, a little, a little longer at 9, 10, and 11. But in, in questions and answers 3 to 8, and for those of you who aren't familiar with this document, it's 452 years old, and it and, and we said the first one in this series, it guides us to Scripture. So I'm going to try to back up everything the Catechism says by guiding us into Scripture. It's a way to get at it. It's a way to put it together. So the Catechism is not Scripture. We know that, okay? And we don't treat it as such, but it guides us, and it's a helpful guide to get us there, okay? So the Catechism in these first, you know, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and then 12, 13, 14, it, it establishes a number of things. First of all, it just makes clear each and every one of us are sinners, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? I mean, every one of us is a sinner. The Bible makes it clear that each and every one of us, none of us are doing good. We are all guilty. We are all sinners, all right? It starts there. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, right? That's just what the text says, that, that because we're sinners, we deserve to die. Third thing, we can't pay for our sin, Ephesians 2, 1, you are dead in your sins, okay? And, and, and so what the catechism is doing here is, is, in a sense, the catechism is trying to walk, knock out all hope, okay? It's trying to knock out anything we can say, I don't have to worry about judgment because I, I'm not a sinner. No, you are a sinner. I, I'm, I'm, I, and it's just trying to say, no, you can't pay for your sins. The rages of sin is death. We are born sinners, in fact, the, 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 the catechism says, and so does Scripture. Psalm 51, verse 5, David is saying, God, surely I was sinful from birth. Because even before I was born, I was a sinner. The Bible makes it clear, we're born that way. We are born with a bent to sin. In in fact, we could put it this way. We're born not able not to sin. The fact is, I do it, and and every one of us does, and and we are born that way. And that's why the catechism wants to push us to the point where we say, there is no hope. We, he wants to put us in a box and says there is no hope. Now, it, it, we got a little, little teaser here, apart from Jesus Christ, okay? It's going to tell us that's the only one. And, and as I was thinking about that in this first section, and like I said, I, I think sometimes people kind of say, you, preachers are so negative all the time. Well, here's, here's the problem, is, is that what the catechism wants to do, what the Bible wants to do, what I want to do when I preach, is I want to make sure that you understand the real hope, because hope is a wonderful thing unless it's a false hope. Okay, hope is a wonderful thing unless it's a false hope. And I want to give you an image of this and, 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 and try to kind of help us understand. And again, for me, this is Christianity basic, 101, and I need to keep coming back to it time and time again. I want you to imagine this situation. Now, this is a not, I'm going to add some Photoshop stuff later, but this is an actual picture of a car outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I don't know how this person got to this place, but this person got the car onto the railroad tracks, and is stuck there, okay? Now, I want you to imagine that um, one of your kids is there maybe, but I'll imagine it's my son, Jake, my youngest son. And um, those of you who know Jake know that this might happen to him, right? He could end up in a situation like this. So I'm going to imagine it's Jake there, and I'm close enough to see him, but I can't get to him, and he calls me on the phone, okay? And he says, "Uh, Dad, man, you see where I am? Yeah, Jake, I see where you are. I said, get out of the car. Why, Dad? I don't want to do that, man. Don't you realize American Pie just came on the radio? Eight minutes and 33 seconds. I got to listen to the whole thing, Dad. Jake, get out of the car. You're on a railroad track. Dad, lighten up, dude. Nothing's going to happen. 
there's not going to be a train. There's not going to, I just, I've never seen a train here. It's okay. I don't have to get out of the car. And I'm like, Jake, get out of the car. And, and, and then maybe he sees a light. It's nothing. Just a light there. It's not anything. And the light gets a little bigger. And the light gets a, a little bigger. And, and he tells me that. He's on the phone. And Don McLean is singing American Pie. And, and I say, Jake, get out of the car. It's a train. And he, no, it's not a train. That's his hope, right? It's, it's not a train. I'm sure it's just a guy with a flashlight. I'm sure it's just a guy with a flashlight. I said, Jake, keep looking. And then just, okay, he can see it's a train, right? It's, it's a train. Jake, get out of the car. Jake, get out of the car, please. You've got to do this. Dad, okay, I know it's a train, but I think the train is going to turn, right? It's going to take a different path. It's going to, Dad, I love this song. I can't quit, man. I can't get out of the car. The train is going to turn. And you say, Jake, no, the train is not going to turn. There's nothing there. Jake, the train is not going to turn. Get out of the car. Okay, the train's not going to turn, but I can still get my car to go. Dad, I can still get my car to go. Jake, you tried for an hour. You can't. You're absolutely stuck. Get out of the car. Get out of the car. My car will go. Jake, your car won't go. Dad, the song is still going. He's up to the best part. Jake, get out of the car. Jake, your car's not going to go. Okay, my car's not going to go, but Dad, I have airbags. <laughs> I have airbags, right? And, 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 and this is why, right, if your son is in that car, if your daughter is in that car, and they keep giving you these excuses, you're going to want to do everything in your power to say, don't depend on any of those things. Because if you depend on any of those things, you're going to die. And, and that's why the catechism pushes us. That's why the scriptures push us. That's why it wants to nail it exactly shut and say to us, there is no hope apart from Jesus. Because what we have this amazing tendency to do is to say, I don't want to surrender to Jesus. I'm going to believe that there's really not going to be a a judgment day. The train really isn't going to come. I haven't seen a train on this track ever before in my life. I haven't seen enough evidence that there's God. So there's not going to be a judgment day. I'm sure he'll turn it around. I'm sure he'll... No way. I've done good enough. In the catechism, in, in, in the scriptures, point us to saying, no... There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. But some of you might have an objection. And and, and this is one of the reasons I like how the catechism, again, guides us through Scripture. But some of you might have an objection and say, hold on, time out. Time out. I've got some questions. And this is where I want to look at question 9, 10, and 11. Because I think these are are fascinating. Because these are the kind of questions I think you and I ask. And, and, and this is going to guide us into Scripture, okay? The first, question, the, 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 the first question has to do kind of with this statement here, all right? That we are born sinners. That's one that has gotten a lot of people's craw, and, and I, I understand it, right? I mean, I know David says it. I know the Scriptures say, you know, I'm sinful from birth, even from the moment my mother conceived me. That's Psalm 51. That's Scripture. That's what the Bible teaches. But doesn't that make it a little unfair? I mean, look at the argument, Right? I am not able not to sin, right? I'm not able not to sin, but because I sin, I have to die. Well, is that really fair? That's what the catechism asks. Doesn't God require us, and of, do, doesn't God do us an injustice by requiring in his law what we are unable to do, right? Or to put it kind of just a little more colloquially, isn't this unfair? Isn't God requiring us to do something we can't do? If you tell me that you're going to shoot me unless I can jump 30 feet in the air, the answer is shoot me, right? 
I, I can't. I, 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 I could never, and it doesn't matter how much I did to try, I can't. So isn't God being unfair here? If I am unable not to sin, if Psalm 51 verse 5 is right, then isn't it, I mean, come on, doesn't he have to stop the train because it's just an unfair game? Isn't this unfair, the answer? No, this is what the, the scriptures say to us. And again, the catechism directs us to that. No, God created human beings with the ability to keep the law. What, what the catechism points to is that the Bible makes clear that when we were created, we were created good. And it was our sin that drove us to where we are now. They, however, provoked by the devil in willful disobedience, robbed themselves and all their descendants of these gifts. And what this is talking about is something you may have heard of called original sin. And, 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 and it's, a, it's a hard concept for us as, as Westerners to get a hold of. Because what it basically says, and this is what the Bible teaches, I'll show you where it says it in a minute. But what it basically says is that somehow when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and, and they had the possibility of not sinning. We were created able not to sin. Now we're not able not to sin, but we were created able not to sin. But that somehow we were with Adam and Eve. In fact, you could say we were in Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve ate of that apple, that was also me. That was also me. Somehow I was a part of them. Somehow they were my representative. They were my, my, my connection. I was in them. And, and, and that's why. That's why, in fact, I thought the catechism, I, this was just interesting to me, I would have assumed I had to read it twice because I thought the catechism might well have said, you know, God created human beings with the ability to keep the law, but we, however, because that's really what it's saying, we, however, provoked by the devil in willful disobedience, robbed ourselves and our descendants of these gifts. Where does the Bible say that? Romans 5, all right. First, we start in, in verse 12. Therefore, Paul says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Somehow in Adam, in what he did, we all sinned, okay? Somehow in that, we all did that. And and, and the Bible is saying, look, I know you're you're born with sin, but... And, and you're born with an inability, to, but you had the option. Somehow we had the option in Adam. I, I know that's hard for us to understand. I know that's hard for us to grasp. It becomes even clearer in verse 19. For just as though, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Okay, again, he's going to draw a comparison here. But through the one man, through Adam, all of us were made sinners. Through Adam, somehow because of we were in him, we were, we were a part of him, we were in that choice. And, and, and the reason it becomes important is because he's going to say, and we are also in Christ. Okay, all right, just as we were in Adam, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So we all sinned in Adam, but we're all saved in Christ. And if we all, I, I believe with all my heart that clearly Scripture teaches that I can be in Christ. And the parallel is, is that I was also in Adam. Now, for some of us, again, you're going to say, I still don't like that answer. I still feel like I'm being charged for somebody else's mistake. I wasn't there in the garden, and I think I might have done better. The fact of the matter is, I want you to know something. At the end of the day, God's going to, he's fair. And I think on judgment day, not one of us are ever going to say anything like, I didn't get what was coming to me. No, we are going to recognize it's fair. And, and one thing that is very clear, and, and this is a passage we need to keep in mind, Ezekiel 18.20, we all are going to only pay for our own sins, okay? All right, Ezekiel 18.20. Yeah, I believe somehow we were all in Adam, but at the end of the day, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share in the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. 
The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. And so if that bugs you still, that's okay, because it's a really hard thing and to get our minds around and so on. Just know this. At the end of the day, you're not punished for Adam's sin. Okay, at the end of the day, I'm guilty because of my own sin. And, 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 and I, again, I accept what the Bible teaches that, that somehow I was there in Adam, that I was created in Adam, unable to, or able to not sin. But, but whatever the case, even if I don't buy that, I have to buy the fact that it's, it's going to be fair, okay? It, 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 the, the original sin stuff does not work in such a way that you say, well, you see, I didn't even have a chance. No, we all, we all in a sense, had the same option as Adam, and we all blew it in Adam or on our own. Um, so, you know, so... Then the, catech- the person, you know, writing the catechism kind of says, okay, all right, so everybody sinned. And, and, and then it kind of says, okay, well, doesn't this look a little bad? I mean, really, again, let's, the situation the Bible describes, the situation I believe is real is every human being deserves to go to hell. Every human being deserves death, right? That's what Scripture teaches. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Catechism wants to say, well, excuse me. Can't God just let it go? Can't God just change the standard? Um, can't God make the test 60% or something? I mean, if a teacher gives a test and everybody fails, you start to say, maybe the teacher needs to look at the test. Maybe that's not fair, isn't it? Here's, here's how the catechism asked it in question 10. Does God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And, and I would put it this way. Can't God just let it go? Let it go? I, I mean, after all, everyone's doing it. I mean, if everybody in, in the town decides to, to do something different than the law, you don't throw everybody in jail. You change the law. And here God is. And, 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 and again, in his, what I want to suggest is that God would like to do this too. <laughs> that there is a part of God that would love to do this. That in a sense, God would like to say, you know what? Yep, let's just start all over. Let's just let it go. Let's just forget it. But he can't, all right? He can't. So let's look at why the Bible says he can't, all right? Answer 10 says, certainly not. God can't just let it go. And it's going to give us two reasons. The first one I want you to be really careful to stick with me on. Um, both are important. The second one is more important. The first one can kind of be a challenge for us as we, as we think about it, okay? Because what the first thing he says is, is and again, this is all over Scripture, but God is terribly angry with the sin we were born with as well as the sins we personally commit, God is angry, and he can't just let it go. Now, the reason I say be careful with this is because what I find myself kind of feeling like this is, God, get over it. God's got an anger problem, and I have to go to hell? What's the deal? God, you, you're just angry? I mean, I, I, I've learned not to punish my children in my anger because I know my anger isn't always very wise. And so, God, come on, it's an emotion. Just get over it. But a couple of things. First of all, God's emotions are perfect. Okay, they're not like ours. They're perfect. But the other thing is, and, and, and to me this is significant, notice what God is angry with. God is angry with the sin, right? God is angry with the sin that we are born with and the sins that we personally commit. That's what God hates. That's what God hates. God is angry with sin. God is angry with that because sin destroys us. Sin destroys his creation, all right? Sin does it, and that's what God hates, all right? And in the same way, and for those of you who are are visiting with us this morning, um, Daniel prayed for two people battling cancer. Ben, with a relapse, is four. And Drew is 13 with leukemia. And 
Friends, I hate cancer. And I think you're weird if you don't. I mean, I'm angry with cancer, and sin is like a cancer. I hate cancer because it destroys life. I hate cancer because it destroys people. I hate cancer. That's the way God is angry at sin. That's what God hates about it. And at the end of the day, we want God's anger to act, to say there's going to be a time when it's gone. Okay, right? I don't want to live in a world for eternity where there is cancer. I don't want to live in a world for eternity where I keep hurting people. I don't want to live in a world for eternity where I keep getting it wrong. That's why we sing, Oh Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sight, when the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. Because I want to say, Come, Lord Jesus, and, and, and stop all that's wrong. God, God can't just let it go. He loves us too much, right? And ultimately, I don't want him to just let it go. I want him to put an end to it. I want him to bring judgment. I want him to stop it. I want him to... I, I don't want to live in a world where cars aren't on train tracks anymore. I don't want to live in a world where, where kids are beaten up by their parents or sexually abused by somebody else, right? God is angry for very good reasons. He is angry with the sins. He's angry with what sin does. That's what God hates. That's what the Bible says he hates time and time again. The other reason, so he's angry at this, and we don't want him to not be angry at it. The other reason we say God can't just let it go is, is that he is a just judge, all right? And, and, and it's part of who God is. God is a just judge, and he will punish both now and in eternity, having declared, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the t- things written in the book of the law. <sighs> Scripture is clear on this that God is justice, that God is fair, that his character, and this is not, emotion is sort of an, 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 anger is an emotion that comes and goes. Just is something that is there all the time, and God is absolutely just. God is absolutely fair. He's got to do the right thing. He can't not. That's what Habakkuk says to us. Habakkuk is praying to God, and he, and he throws this, kind of throws it back in God's face. He says, God, you are too just to tolerate evil. Habakkuk 1.13. You are too just to tolerate evil. You are unable to condone wrongdoing. So why do you put up with it? Why do you put up with, with such treacherous people? Why do you say nothing when the wicked devour those more righteous than they are? God, you are just. And, and you know you cannot let it go. It is a part of who he is. But God can't simply set aside his justice. And again, in the long run, we don't want him to. In the long run, we don't want him to. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God can't just say, you know, when we sin, you see things get out of balance. When, when we sin, there's a, a cost that's incurred and it has to be paid. It just has to be paid. That's the way it works. Acts 17. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. God gives us time, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Can God just let it go? No. No, he hates sin, and we don't want to live brokenness forever either. And he is just, and he cannot set aside his justice, okay? And and again, he wouldn't be God if he did. And that's why, in a sense, I think God would like to say, yeah, I wish I couldn't be just on this one, but he knows in the long run it doesn't work anymore then. It has to be there. God is just, and, and justice is something he wrote into the rules of the universe, so to speak. 
Okay, that's 10. Then the catechism has another question. Okay, okay, he's just. But isn't he also merciful? Uh, uh, Question 11, isn't God also merciful? Doesn't the Bible say that he has mercy? And, And so why can't God just let his mercy side win, right? Why can't God just let his mercy side win? He's got justice here and mercy here. We do that with our kids sometime. Uh, today I'll be mercy. Tomorrow I'll be justice. <laughs> right? We do that. So why doesn't God let his mercy side win? The answer, God is certainly merciful. But again, it says, but he's also just. And, and what's amazing about God is, is that he's both of these things at the same time. Absolutely 100%. God's justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with his supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. And, and here's what we need to understand on this one. We don't get to, in God, pit God's justice against God's mercy. He is one. See, in, in, in me, I can be divided. I can be split because I'm not right. I'm broken. But God can't. His justice and his mercy are, are just absolutely tied together. They, they can't let go of one or the other. There's absolutely no way he can do that. He is God. He is one. We kind of try to say, well, well, this side against this side. God is one. And all of his, he's all of his attributes all of the time. He's just and he's merciful in this case all the time. And he cannot become un-one or un-the-other, all right? Again, we see this blending in a beautiful place in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is God showing himself to Moses, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands for forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God is merciful, right? He is so forgiving, and yet, and yet God says, I am also this. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. He is just, okay? He is merciful, and he is just, and we don't get to pit one against the other. And in a sense, that creates, I think, at the heart of it, the Christian problem. The human problem is God's justice and God's mercy. And Because he loves you, and he loves me, and he wants more than any for us, for us to get out of the car. But we're not getting out of the car on our own. And he can't choose to stop the train. That would derail his justice. And so God has this amazing problem, all right? So let me try to cap this up, and, and then we'll be done. Question nine, isn't this unfair? No, it's, it's not. We, we are going to only get what we deserve, okay? I just promise you that. We are only going to get. Can, can, can't, God just God let it, can't God just let it go? No, he, he's just, and he can't. Well, why doesn't he just let his mercy win on this one? Again, God is both merciful and just. So let's go back to the beginning. And, and, and look at the box. We're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. We can't pay for our sins. We're born sinners. We have to add to our list. It's all fair. Judgment has to come because God is just, and we ultimately really wanted to. God is both merciful and just, and they're not against each other. There's only one thing. And again, the catechism wants us to get to a place where we say there is no hope. There is no hope. And, 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 and until we get to that place... We will never understand the beauty of Jesus until we get to that place where there is no hope unless God does something amazing. And friends, this is why the cross is so beautiful. Because there's one place, there was one way that God could be just completely just and completely merciful. And that is by pouring out justice onto himself in his son. 
and showing mercy by giving us grace through that cross. Friends, that's why people look at the cross and sing songs about it over and over again. Because that is the only place, that's the only way for us to get out of the car. That's the only place that can give us new life. Because God's justice has to be satisfied and God's mercy has to be satisfied. Because they are ultimately the same. They are one thing. And the only place that can do it is a cross. You can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody else can do it. And so get out of the car and come to the cross. That's what the catechism wants to do to us. That's what scripture wants to do to us. Paul's letters are written so often about our sinfulness, God's salvation, and then how we serve. And and so the first part of joy is knowing my misery. The first part of life is realizing I'm dead. And, And so as we close, I just promise you the train is coming. It's not going to turn away and it's not going to stop. But you don't have to be hit. Because in Christ, there is life. And that's the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we don't like to hear bad news. But if it's bad news that reminds us there is only one good news place, then let us know the bad news. Father, break us by your spirit so that we will run to Jesus, so that we will run to Jesus and find safety in him. Lord, thank you for that amazing gift to know that I'm dead, to know that I can't do anything about it, and yet Jesus Christ died for me so that I could live. Father, I just give you thanks for that, and and I pray, I think right now about these babies that were baptized. I pray that they can come to know that, and that they can run to Jesus, that they can receive your grace, and your love. You promise them that you want them to come to you, that you will draw them to you, Father. Help them to do that and help each and every one of us to get out of the car and run into the safe and loving arms of Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Will you please stand to receive God's parting word of benediction? Um, to the service, they're going to say, folks, the prayer room, I'll be around front if you want to say, I think that's crazy, Ron. Um, be great, love to talk to you about it, but uh, um, yeah, pray, do that, enjoy, celebrate with families. People of God, as we go from this place, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.